Father, we pray for your blessing that you would expand our minds, that you would open up our understanding, that we'd be able to walk away this morning with just some clarity as to what Palm Sunday is all about, why it was brought to fruition, why it's so important to us even today. And we know that your word contains all these answers, but Father, I pray that it would just settle in our hearts that as your word says, we might be able to give a reason for the hope that lies within. That we would simply not be hearers of the word, but we would be doers. And we would examine your scriptures daily to see if what is written or what is taught is true. Father, we can only do this by the leading of your spirit. If we do anything out of the flesh, it tends to just be wood hand stubble. But we ask, Lord, that you would help us to store up gold, silver, and precious stones by investing in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is the first day of what is known as, in the church calendar, the Passion Week of Christ. And Palm Sunday is the week before what is known as Passover or Easter or the Resurrection Day. And the date for Easter, which we will celebrate next week, it changes from year to year. And it is based upon the first full moon. Our full moon was in March 20th. And the first week after that, the first Sunday, is when we celebrate Easter. So the week before Easter Sunday is Palm Sunday. And that date moves. This vernal equinox is what we are in. And if you don't understand what that is, the vernal equinox... There's two equinoxes, and they are on either side of the sun, and it's where we're facing the sun, the side of the earth, so to speak. And when it is at the solstice, the solstice is either at the longest day or the shortest day of the year. And so as we go around, we have two solstices, and we have two equinoxes, however you say it in in the plural form. And solstice means sun stop. That means the days are getting shorter and it stops, or the days are getting longer and it stops. And the equinox is equal day or equal night is actually what it refers to. It's where the days and the nights are equal, the time. And so we know that that has a cycle that we go through long days and long nights, that type of thing. We go back and forth. And this is when we celebrate Easter and Palm Sunday. Now, this, of course, was based on the Passover. Of course, Jesus was crucified on the Passover. And the Passover was given to the Jews just so that they would know and understand that Jesus is the sacrificial lamb who would come to this earth and be sacrificed for our sins. Now, for the Jews, Passover begins Friday dusk, this next Friday, and it goes to Saturday dusk. And, of course, the next day is Sunday. That's Resurrection Sunday. And that's what we're going to celebrate. Now, this is the main festival that starts the year for the Jews, and they have seven festivals. There's Passover, the first of the spring festivals, then unleavened bread, the first fruits, the bringing in of the first of the harvest, and it's expressing gratitude. This is what the Jews celebrate. Then there's Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks, and it's 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus, and it's the end of the grain harvest is what they celebrate, and they give thanks to God. Then there's the fall festivals, like trumpets, 
It is the end of the agricultural year. And it also, for us, it could signify the return of the Lord. Remember when there is a um, the call of the archangel, the trumpet that sounds, the feast of trumpets. Many people believe that that's when Jesus will come back to meet us in the air at the rapture. According to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Then there is the day of atonement where the sins of Israel are atoned for and tabernacles, which reminds the Jews that they once dwelt in the wilderness for 40 years. And so they set up these shelters and that's what they do. And those are the festivals that the Jews are supposed to celebrate. Now, there's a few others that aren't uh, required like Hanukkah. Jesus celebrated Hanukkah and the Feast of Purim. Uh, those types of things are still celebrated by the Jews, but they are not required in Scripture. Now, Palm Sunday is the day that we celebrate the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem one week before his resurrection. And there is a setup for this. I'd like you to turn to Daniel chapter 9, and I'm going to give you some understanding on this if you don't have it already. And by the way, we are reminding ourselves today what Palm Sunday is. We'll remind ourselves next week what the Resurrection Sunday is all about. And it's necessary that we do this. Now, the Jews did these festivals every single year, and they would remember every year, just like we do Christmas. Every year, we remind ourselves of the birth of the Savior. And Easter, or resurrection, that's what we want to remember. But Jesus was prophesied coming into the city of Jerusalem, so many hundreds and hundreds of years ago that that is the reason, me personally, why I trust the Bible because this prophecy has been given and Jesus fulfilled it to the day. I'm going to give you a number, 173,880. If you remember those numbers or that number, that is the number of days that were prophesied until the Messiah would show up in Jerusalem, and that turned out to be Palm Sunday. It came to the exact day. God had prophesied this, Jesus fulfilled it, and that is how we know, in fact, that he is God. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, we are told through the prophet Daniel about this coming of the anointed one who is the Messiah. It says, know and understand this from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes. There will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. Now, that's a total of 483 years. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the 62 sevens, a total of 434 years, The anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. Now, this this idea of these sevens, uh, a week of sevens is a week of seven years total. And so when you do the math, if there's 62 sevens and seven sevens added to that, you take... 69 and you multiply it by seven and that gives us the number of years and and you have to do a little bit of bible study to find out why that's the case but for right now you'll just have to trust me okay i don't want to go too deep into it and so there's 62 sevens that transpire and i i want you to look at this because it's kind of hard to keep track of the numbers but 62 sevens have transpired but there's still a group of seven that have not been fulfilled it's like 434 years went by, and boom, it got cut off. And why did it get cut off? Well, the Messiah got cut off at that point, 
But then there's seven more that are yet in our future that have to be fulfilled. Now, this is talking about the seven years, or what I'm talking about is the seven years of tribulation. It says, in the middle of the seven, and back in verse 27, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of the temple he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. So that jumps all the way to the tribulation period. And we are told by God himself when the last seven is coming. And the way that you know you are in it, of course we won't be, because we're going to be raptured, but the way that we know that the world will be in it is this abomination which makes desolate. That is where the Jews will be able to set up their temple. They're going to rebuild it. They want to rebuild it. It's not a matter of if. It's just a matter of when. And every year they try to set a cornerstone up there. And so when they do, when they set that up, the Antichrist will enable them to do that. He's going to have a treaty with them for one seven. At the beginning of the seven, in the middle of the seven, he sets up an image. He says, I am God, worship me. And then the Jews, their eyes will be opened. And voila, they're in the middle of the tribulation period. And from that point on, the next three and a half years, literally all hell breaks loose. Now, when we look at this, God wanted us to know when he was going to show up and what was going to be the condition when he showed up the next time, his second coming. And so this is spelled out for us. Now, this is going to be the final kingdom that is going to be on the earth. Now, just as a side note here, if you watch the world stage, and I try to pay attention to it a little bit, what's happening in Germany and France and England with Brexit, and they're, they're shimmying and vying for a position over there, and May is going to have to just resign, and it's just a real big problem and in our country there's this divide that is coming and those on the left would say we can't operate with this divide well come on over to the right if you don't want to operate with the divide and then the the right says you know we can't operate with this divide and the left says well come on over to the left and, and there's this turmoil going on and there is this battle that has taken place i want to let you know eventually the conservatives the right, it's going to lose. I don't know when, but the right, the conservatives are going to lose. And the liberals are going to take over. How do I know this? Well, I'm not a prophet nor a son of a prophet. But I do know what scripture says. Scripture does tell us that the Antichrist, he is this rider on a white horse that goes out and bent on conquest. And he is going to subdue the nations. And he's going to cause many to die. And during the tribulation period, over 5 billion people are going to die. Over There's over 7.5 billion right now. If it was to happen today, over 5 billion people would die. And Jesus wanted us to know what is taking place. And he wanted us to look for the signs. And one of the big signs was him showing up. In Jerusalem, when the Jews were brought back, of course, they fell under a curse because they did not receive him as Messiah. And he said in 70 AD, there would be a, a guy, he didn't name the year, but he said, this guy is going to come along or somebody's going to come along and they're going to destroy the temple and the city. And it did take place. The Arch of Titus, if you guys are familiar with that, in Rome depicts Titus ransacking the Jewish homeland. And it's, it's on the side if you were to go there and look at the arch of Titus. And so Jesus said, because you did not receive me, that is the curse. And of course, they were disbanded for about 2,000 years. May 14th, 1948, they became a nation again. 
And that is in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy that they would, in fact, inhabit the land again. But when that takes place, we know that the generation that inhabits Israel will not pass away until those seven years are complete. And after that, God is going to save all the Israelites which are there. Now, that's the final kingdom that's going to be set up. And if you remember Daniel, when he went into the dream of Nebuchadnezzar and, and he had this image in his mind, well, you had the feet, the two feet that was clay mixed with iron. It was the two sides of the Roman Empire which were there. That's going to be the revived Roman Empire that's going to come to fruition. And how do I know that that's going to take place? Because the other kingdoms have already been established and already gone by the wayside. Remember when uh, King Nebuchadnezzar had the dream, he was Babylon and he was prophesied as the head of God. Old, and you also had the Medes and the Persians and the uh, Grecians and the Rome, uh, the Roman uh, uh, rule that was installed, and all of that was because of the dream. All of that came to pass. The last one that has not come to pass yet are the ten toes on the image that is in the book of Daniel. And so Jesus wanted to know, wanted us to know all of this, and it is triggered by his entry in Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. That is when the anointed one will show up. And so in this book, written by Sir Robert Anderson, the coming prince, he worked out the days when this prophecy was given that the the Messiah, the anointed one, would show up. And, and it said in there, from the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And we have that date when that was done. And we have it recorded in scripture when it was done. And that was in the book of Nehemiah. If you want to turn there, I just want you to be familiar with it. You could probably write a little note in your Bible. If you have your Bible in Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, to turn to Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. And we're going to read that. Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. It says, in the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought to him, I took the wine, of course this is Nehemiah speaking here, or writing this down, and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of the heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruin and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked him, or asked me, how long will your journey take? And when will you get back? It, (coughs) excuse me, it pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so that he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king 
had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. This is the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And so these number of years that are supposed to transpire, transpire the 62 sevens, it started counting from that day. You could take a stopwatch, you could take a calendar, and you could just start counting. And if you count that, that's where you get to the 173,880 days from this point to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Palm Sunday. And it was prophesied to do that. And Sir Robert Anderson, he wrote, he did all the calculations going through the different calendars and adding in the leap years and all of that. And Jesus arrived exactly when God had Daniel write, this is when he would arrive. Now, this is where we can put trust in the Bible. Now, I think I've mentioned this to you before uh, that I've talked to Omar, the Muslim, and I asked him to find prophecy in the Quran, and he couldn't do it. And I asked him to find prophecy in any other books that were out there, and, of course, he, he couldn't meet the challenge. And there's no other book that has ever been written throughout all history that has prophetic utterances written down in its pages and where we can see and we can test and we can verify that these prophecies have come true. This is how we know God authored it. People will come along and say, oh, your Bible is just full of a bunch of fables and epic stories and there's nothing to be trusted in there. Au contraire, if you just do a cursory study of it, you will find out there are hundreds of prophecies concerning Jesus Christ, over 300 that he fulfilled. That's why we put our trust in this. And it's important that we recognize Palm Sunday because this is huge. This means the Messiah is coming, the one who will redeem us, the one who will take us to be with him in heaven, the one who will give us new bodies, will be restored to all those loved ones that have gone before us, that are in the Lord, that are part of the church. And so it gives us some hope. Now I want to go over what Jesus did for the next eight days, so to speak. He had the triumphal entry. That's the first day. Because God left this message for us. He said, okay, this is what's happening the last eight days of his life on earth. Now, he is God in human form. If you were God in human form and you were on earth and you wanted to tell everybody something and you wanted to leave examples, what would you do and what would you say? It's pretty important. If you know you're gonna, your life is going to end, do you not put everything in order? Do you not communicate everything you want to communicate and what would be the most important thing that you would want to leave with them would you say just make sure my will is in order and that there's a medical directive and would you do something like that or would you say now i want you to be careful because this is what's going to happen to you and i want you to be aware and i want your eyes to be open i want you to be diligent because if you are it's going to bode well for you and if you're not it is not going to bode well for you. That's the kind of information you would give. I know if I was to expire in the next month or so, I would go to my kids and I'd say, now listen, this is what I'm going to tell you, and I want you to be aware, and I want you to follow through with what I'm telling you. I wouldn't say, you know, make sure the stocks are just doing fine and make some trades over here. I wouldn't do any of that. That's not what's important. I want to make sure my kids make it to heaven. That's what I would focus on. And that's exactly what Jesus focus on, or focuses on. So the first day is a triumphal entry, or Palm Sunday. The second day is Monday, where Jesus clears out the temple. On Tuesday, Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives. On Wednesday, it's called Holy Wednesday, or what is also known as Spy Wednesday, because that spy Judas 
That's when he goes and makes his deal for 30 pieces of silver. The day five is a Passover and Last Supper. The day six, the trial, the crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection. Or excuse me, not the resurrection, but just the burial on Good Friday. Saturday, day seven, he's in the tomb, and Sunday is the resurrection. But I want to go over this just a little bit. So day one, prophecy fulfilled. It also says in Malachi chapter three, verse one, there wasn't just one prophecy that Jesus would show up. There were more. Here's one of them. Malachi 3, 1. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. So he tells us in other places that he's going to come. He also told us how he would arrive. Would he arrive in an SUV? No. Would he arrive in a motorboat coming up the Jordan River? No. He didn't do that. He came on a donkey. Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 tells us that. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And of course, we know that that's how Jesus rode into Jerusalem. Now, I, I don't recall scripture saying which gate he went into. Uh, it probably was the south gate. The money changers would have been down there. And that's probably where he went in and he walked up the states, the stairs that were on the south end uh, of the Temple Mount area. He could have gone through the Gate Beautiful or on the west side. We're really not sure that would have been behind the temple. He would have come up that way, but probably down the steps because we know that he went back the next day and he cleared out the temple. Jesus, meek and mild, remember he made a whip? There's a debate about that. Did Jesus take the whip and use it on the animals? Or did he use it on the people? Or did he use it on both? Let's see. God in human form, who has great restraint, but it seems like the restraint was thrown off a little bit. I'm going to let you decide. Do you think he whipped the people? Or do you think he whipped the animals? We'd like to think, Jesus, meek and mild. He made a whip, people. You know, and he's cracking that thing out there. And the, the people behind the money-changing tables, there comes that Jesus again. They're getting up, they're running away. Get the money quick. And they're doing everything they can to get up. Get the doves in the cages and get those. Look at him go here. He's coming over here. The, just mayhem would have ensued at that time. People would have thought he's some kind of lunatic going in there. But he starts declaring, you have made... My father's house, a den of thieves or a den of robbers. Because you guys know what they were doing. You'd bring your little sacrifice, your little lamb to sacrifice, no blemish on it whatsoever. And they'd look at it and say, hey, hey look at it. He has a gray hair right there. We can't use it. And so they would take that off to the side. We have a newer model for you. And get you a newer model for the sacrifice. And, oh, but you've got to use the temple money. Oh, there's an exchange rate. Just went to Africa. You know, they have an exchange rate for the money over there. Well, they charge you for the money. They charge you extra. This is our latest Cadillac model right here. And that's what you would get. You get that lamb that they would say is perfect. Of course, we'll take your lamb for half price. You know, we'll take that around the side. And then when that person's all done, they'd bring the other one around that they just bought from this guy. And they were just, they had a racket going on. And Jesus knew it. And he was uptight. And so he made this whip. Now, the Jews rejected the Messiah, and as a result, they would be judged. I told you in 70 AD, Titus destroyed the temple. <coughs> and the Jews, they were back in the land, but they weren't back in the land independently. They were under Roman rule. 
But there is a prophecy that tells us that they would come back in the land May 14th, 1948. It doesn't say that date, but it does say when they come, they will be slaves to no one. They will be their own independent country. It says in Jeremiah chapter 30, verses 1 through 3, and also verse 8. I'll just read it to you. It says, this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Write in the book all the words I have spoken to you. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will bring my people Israel and Judah back from captivity and restore them to the land I gave their forefathers to possess, says the Lord. Now, some people would say, yeah, but, you know, they were back in the land already under the Roman rule because Jeremiah was before the Romans. Now, you read verse 8 in that same passage, it says, In that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will break the yoke off their necks and will tear off their bonds. No longer will foreigners enslave them. Instead, they will serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Now, some other people might say, well, yeah, but that's future. You know, that that it doesn't mean that they're in the land right now. Well, they, we are told in Matthew chapter 24, that the generation that occupies Israel when the tribulation happens will never pass away. And so they're there now, and they will be through the tribulation, although they will go and be protected for a little while, they're going to come right back. That generation will not pass away. So we have been given the prophecy directly from God in the book of Jeremiah that they will get back into the land. And they occupied the land when it was desolate, and it is not desolate today. So that was day one. Jesus showed up, Palm Sunday. Day two, Jesus clears the temple. In Matthew chapter 21, verse 13, it says, It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And, of course, this is quoting Jeremiah chapter 7. In verse 9 through 11, where he says, actually in verse 11, has this house which bears my name become a a den of robbers to you? But I've been watching, declares the Lord. Now this is the word of God. This is Jesus speaking through Jeremiah, shows up and says the exact same thing. And so we know that the coming of Jesus was prophesied in so many different ways. And he was, of course, anointed on this same day. This is where Mary took about a pint of nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. This is listed in John chapter 12, verses 3 through 8, because he was going to be crucified. He was going to his death. And, you know, scoffers and mockers were there. Wow, this could have been used for the poor. Of course, Judas was one of those. And Jesus was so impressed with this woman's devotion that he said, whenever this is talked about, whenever this is preached, whenever my death is proclaimed, this will be talked about. The fact that she anointed him with this oil. And it's in all four Gospels. It's one of the few things that's in all four Gospels. And so he honored her by doing that. Day three, Spy Wednesday. Matthew chapter 26, verse 14, it says, Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and asked, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver coins, or 30 silver coins. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. And of course, this was prophesied as well. Zechariah chapter 11, verse 12, I told them, if you think it best, give me my pay, but if not, keep it. 
So they paid me 30 pieces of silver. And there's so many prophecies about the crucifixion of Jesus, where he would be born and how he would die. All of those things are in the Old Testament. Then day five was Passover and the Last Supper. Last Supper. And of course, we, we know from the scriptures that it was on this particular event, this Passover, that Jesus washed the feet of the disciples. And so the whole time you see what's taken place here. You see how Jesus was anointed for his death that was there. You see that he felt he had the authority over that which took place in the temple. We see that he was the greatest of all servants. Remember in the household of the Jews at that time, if somebody came into a house, if somebody that had a servant in there, the servant was required to wash the feet of those who would visit. And usually that was reserved for the lowest servant on the rung. And Jesus, he girded himself up and he washed the feet of the disciples that were there at this Passover meal. And remember Peter, no, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. You're not going to be touching them. And he goes, well, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, then you'll have no part of my kingdom. Well, not just my feet. Start with my hair, work your way down on my arms and my hands and my whole body. I need to be clean. He goes, no, 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 no. If your feet are just dirty, we'll just wash your feet. That'll be it. And Peter's just, he's talking smack, you know, out there. He, He just doesn't know what to say. He's stumbling over himself over and over, we see. But he turned out to be a great apostle. It's wonderful what God did through him, but still the other side of the death, burial, and resurrection, I think he was like a lot of us. And so Jesus showed himself to be the servant. This is one of the examples that he gave. Now, if you felt you're going to transpire in the next week or the next month, would you show your children and those around you, please just get along. Please serve one another. This is what the God of the universe who became a man who was incarnate let us know that we should do as well. If you think your life is ebbing towards an end, do everything you can for everyone else. That's where your problems tend to dissipate. When we focus on ourselves, the problems are magnified. That's part of depression. Now, there's clinical depression. I believe in it strongly. I believe that medication can be given to help that. It's wonderful. I think that's great. But one of the things that Jesus would tell us is try not to focus on yourself. Focus on everyone else. And not only when you want to. Become the servant in the household that washes the feet, even when you wouldn't want to. How many have seen a foot washing service? Can I see your hands? Only a few of you, not even 50%. When that takes place, you know, and I've expressed this before, people get really uncomfortable. Because when I saw it, my pastor, you walk down and he picked somebody randomly. And of course, I was sitting down the row from them. And I've seen a couple, but I was sitting down the row this particular kind, uh, time. And I saw this person just turn flush. And they didn't know what to do. It's like, you're going to touch my feet. You're taking my shoes off. And it was, you know, I, I felt kind of sorry for the person, but I get what was going on. Now, there there might have been other things going on there, but it's this idea of being the servant to everyone who is out there. And that's the example he left for us on Passover and the Last Supper. Now, day six was the trial, the crucifixion, death, burial, and on Good Friday, that's when all this took place. And I'm just going to recall 
or read what was taking place here. Then the governor's soldier, Matthew chapter 27, verse 27. Then the governor's soldier took Jesus to the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. And they put the staff in his hand or right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off his robe and put his own clothes on him, then led him away to be crucified. And, of course, we know that he was on the cross for approximately six hours, and then he said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he gave up his spirit at that particular time. And, of course, the witnesses that were there, they saw the earthquake that took place. They saw the darkness that was over the land. The centurion even said, truly, this was the Son of God. And there were people that were coming out of the graves when this happened. And so that would have been quite the miracle uh, to behold at that time. And, of course, in the tribulation, there's going to be earthquakes and there's going to be darkness, all those same things. And and you can tell that God was upset. God the Father was upset, and that's what took place on this physical earth. In day seven, he spent it in the tomb. He was at rest. Now, some people will say, well, he was supposed to be in there three full days. No, that's not how they reckon time, just three days in the tomb. That means he went in on Friday, all day Saturday, and made it to the third day Sunday, and he resurrected on that day Sunday. So he was in the tomb for one full day, and partial day on Friday, and a partial day, uh, just a couple hours or an hour or so, on the Sunday, the resurrection day. And by the way, that is why we meet on Sunday. That is why we don't meet on Saturday. Now, the Jews were required to observe the Sabbath on Sunday or Saturday. We are not required to do that. We celebrate resurrection on Sunday. That's why we get together and we sing songs like today, Hosanna in the highest. You know, it's it's a good day. Jesus showed up 2,000 years ago, and we're here today because he did and because he was crucified and we got forgiveness of our sins. And so if you knew you had a week to live, as I have already said a couple of times, what would you tell those who are closest to you? Have you ever thought about it? Have you ever sat down and said, you know, what, what am I going to tell them? I just want you to hold on that thought a minute. If you have daughters, what would you tell your daughters? If you had sons, If you had a spouse, what would you tell your spouse? All of these things are what what is important. And we want to make sure we leave some wisdom with them. I'd like you to turn over to Luke chapter 21. In Luke chapter 21, it's spelled out here. What Jesus would tell them. Now, I want to make you aware of something. Where is the longest sermon in the Bible? You guys heard me say that? From Jesus. Longest sermon in the Bible from Jesus. Do you guys know? Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Where the Beatitudes are there. Remember, he sat the people down and he began to teach them. Or the disciples sat down and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Remember that? All the way through, that was the longest message. Do you guys know 
what the longest answer to any question Jesus was ever asked where that's located? You can say Luke 21. Go ahead, say it. Yeah, it's in Luke 21. You know, it's also in Matthew chapter 24 and 25 and Mark chapter 13. So the disciples ask a question. Of course, I've got to set this up a little bit. <clears throat> Here they, they are in Jerusalem. This is the last week. And they look at the temple, and it was a magnificent structure. Probably white marble. You know, they have the white marble for the countertops now. Imagine a whole building. Huge building, several stories tall that's there. The top of it, the ring of it had gold on the little spires that would come up from there and there'd be the columns that were there and you'd walk in and there'd be gold all the way on the inside. There'd be this solid gold lampstand which would be be on the left and you would have the showbread on the right and you have the altar of incense. Everything's overlaid with gold in there. Then you have the Holy of Holies. It's a dark room in there. The curtain is pulled over just in a small area up there. It wasn't very big. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And they were in the temple area, and Jesus is walking along, and the disciples are just amazed. They go, look at this building. It is just marvelous, so cool. That's what you might do if you went over to places like Dubai. Look at it. Have you seen the one in Singapore that has three buildings, and then they have this ledge that goes between the three buildings, and there's a disappearing edge pool at the top? So when you get in that pool, you look out, you're, I don't know, 20 stories up, and you're in this pool with a disappearing edge. You probably look over the side and go, oh, this is pretty high up here. But you look at that building and you just go, wow, that is quite the construct which is there. Well, the disciples are doing this. They're looking at the temple going, this is fantastic. Look at this building. There's nothing like it that we know of. And Jesus says, yep, you're right. And not one stone will be left upon another. Do you think they were astonished? I bet at that time, like if it was John, he said, look at this temple. It's just wonderful. And Jesus goes, yep. And not one stone will be left upon another. And they go, what? I'm sure they couldn't believe it. Oh, you're kidding me, right? No, this is going to happen. And this is listed. Now you're in Luke 21. In Matthew chapter 24, Here we have the question that's asked. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? This is the last week that Jesus is existing on earth. Now, he always exists, but this is the last time he's on earth before he is crucified. And so Jesus gives the longest answer to any question because he wants them to know. He wants them to know what lies ahead. Just as I told you, if you had a son, no son, I want you to listen to me and I want you to do this because I'm going to expire here in a week or a month or whatever it is. Or your daughters, you'd say the same thing. Well, these are children of God, the disciples, the apostles, and he wants them to be aware. Luke chapter 21, verse 6 says, As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. And, of course, again, they asked the question. But in verse 8, he replied. Now, this is where he's given them. He's leaving, and he goes, this is what I want you to know. Because he's going to die. This is the information he gives them. He replied, watch out that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name, claiming that I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. So he warns them against false teachers. 
That is our same warning to us. Beware of false teachers. Now, how do you know if false teachers are out there? Of course, Jude talks about false teachers. Peter talks about false teachers which are out there. How do you know if somebody is a false teacher? First, money is going to be an issue. They're going to be siphoning off money for themselves. They're going to be buying jets and houses and say, it's for the ministry. Yeah, we need to go to Switzerland for the ministry and have a house in Switzerland. I need a plane or I need $8 million or the Lord's going to take me. I say, fine, let him take you today. You know, that type of thing. But if, it, if money is an issue, chances are it's a false prophet. My brother, I think I talked to you about Barry Menko. Remember him? I, I, he was in the news. My brother was going to the church and he was reformed embezzler and he had a testimony for quote jesus christ well he embezzled the church funds several million dollars my brother is on the board over there they got rid of him and now it's it's doing great but the guy went back to prison false prophet he couldn't do without the money he started siphoning off the money any ministry that says for right now a gift of 60 dollars, you can have my three vcr tape set I know it's a little dated, but you can have it. Did you not receive freely, freely give? That's what the scripture tells us. You know, we're supposed to trust in the Lord to provide for us, not make a marketing out of uh, whatever's out there. Now, I'm, I'm not going to say that it's not, it's not wrong, or I am going to say it's not wrong to write a book and sell your materials and do all of that. But you know, if the money is an issue, if you're just making yourself wealthy off the people, that type of thing, you, you want to be careful. That's not the only sign because there are people that are in ministry that they, they make a pretty good living because they write books and they do things. I get that. But if you combine it with this false teaching of the scriptures... Uh, once I listened to Creflo Dollar, and everything he said seemed, well, that's good. Hey, Amen. I didn't know who he was. Then I found out who he was, and money was an issue, and his teaching wasn't so good. Uh, he didn't keep to sound doctrine. Remember, if you watch your life and doctrine closely, you'll save yourself and your hearers as well. And so Jesus said, beware these false teachers. So they do not stick to the scripture. They make things up. They go into great detail of what they've seen and what they have. They declare they have all of this authority. They may even call themselves a prophet or an apostle, and they have an issue with money. That's one way to know that there is a false teacher out there. Also, if they beat the sheep and they bring them under subjection to the pastor and they have this hierarchy and you need to submit to the pastor. No, the pastor's supposed to be the servant of all. He's the one that's supposed to be in the toilets and fixing the building and not parking in the closest parking spot, that type of thing. So all of those you can add to the false teachers. And Jesus said, beware of the false teachers and the false prophets. Verse 10, he said, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilence in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. That's for us as well. If there's going to be signs in the heaven, natural disasters that take place, pay attention. Now, if there's an earthquake today and it's 7.0 on the Richter scale, God's coming back! No, it's, it's an earthquake, okay? But if all of a sudden they're really severe and they're increasing in frequency and all of a sudden you look up and there's something in the sky that you have never seen before, I'm waiting for a supernova. 
I would love to see a supernova. Have any of you ever seen a supernova with your eyes? If you see one of those, and it's going to be brighter than the sun during the day, if you see it, that's going to be a sign. We've never seen that, that I know of, throughout all of history. That would be a sign in the heavens. And we want to be aware of that. If that happens, show up to church. We're going to talk, right? Now, it also says, before all this, they will lay hands on you to persecute you. Is there persecution going on in the church today? We don't see it so much here, but you go to other continents, more people are dying today that are Christians than ever before. You go to China, they're tearing down all the churches. They're putting people under the yoke of persecution over there. It is just rampant in China right now. And that's not to mention the other countries in the 1040 window. So all these things are taking place. He said, also, verse 19, by standing firm, you will gain life. Verse 19, verse 20 says, but if you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you know that desolation is near. And of course, he went on to talk about the signs and the sun, moon, and stars, and the earth, and the nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. It says men will faint from terror. I want to tell you what that phrase means. Men will faint from terror. Their heart will stop because they are so afraid, and they will die right there. They will just collapse Because of the fearful events that are coming. Now, are we there yet? No, we're not. But he said, these are the signs that will precede his coming. And so he told us to be aware of the false teachers which are out there. Be ready for the persecution which comes. Beware that there are going to be natural disasters and signs in the heavens. And all of these things will take place. And during the tribulation period, people will faint or they will die because they are so afraid. And they will want to be buried alive in order to not experience what takes place in the tribulation period. They say, we want the rocks to fall on us, is what they want. That's how bad it's going to get. So if Jesus was going to leave, he wanted to leave us these warnings and direction. The final thing that I already read to you there was, if you persevere to the end, you'll be saved. In other words, count your life as nothing. That is what Palm Sunday is all about. Jesus going to the cross and giving his life. He showed up as a victorious individual that that comes God in human form that is there, but he went to his death. He tells us, you have been saved. The glory is going to be yours that comes from the Father and from Jesus Christ. He's going to bless us with all this, but you are going to die. And it's only physically, unless we get raptured. So that's the encouragement that he wants to leave with us on this Palm Sunday. He told his disciples, look, I'm going to die. This is what I want you to know. Beware of the false teachers. Beware of those who would suck money out of the ministry. Beware of those who would take advantage of the sheep, who would lead them to slaughter. Beware of those who do not feed the flock of God. Beware of those who do not become the servant of all. And beware that the end is coming. We do not need to fear This is taking place. As we get into Matthew chapter 24, I'm going to dissect all of this and give you all this information. I've already been going through it with the youth and with the men's, but I'm just going to dive deep into this. And you're going to find out what is in store in the future. May the Lord grant you his grace, his unmerited favor. May you not worry or fret what might happen tomorrow or the next day. He has already instructed us to be aware of those who might take advantage of us. He already told us that we're going to 
eventually expire, get sick and die, should the rapture not take place. And we're not even to worry about that. If we're lying in a hospital bed, we just say, "Eh, all the glory be to Jesus Christ. I'm getting out of here pretty soon. I feel sorry for you that have to remain behind. But you know, it's only going to be a moment. And we are so fearful of that. And God doesn't want us to be fearful. That's why he gave us this instruction. It was in the middle of the week in which he was going to die. And it was the longest answer to any question that they ever asked. He wants us to be encouraged by the same words. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you that Jesus arrived just when you said he would. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to be encouraged by his appearing and also by his death, burial, and resurrection. That we would not worry or fret. That we would take stock in your word and hold to it fast. But also, Lord, help us to take this message to others. That they also might participate in the newness of life. Being part of the kingdom which is awaiting our arrival. We thank you for the salvation that you've brought to us, Lord. And may you be glorified through us individually here and as a church. In Jesus' name, amen.